Today we're going to start our delve into witches. Now most of us think of witches in European stories, tales all across Europe of witches and different witchcraft and things of that nature. But here in the New World, in America, one of the hotspots isn't where you think it was. Most people think Salem and the witch trials. But actually, a bigger hotspot for witches and witchcraft was North Carolina. In 1679, North Carolina law directed local officers to investigate felonies, witchcraft, enchantments, sorceries, and magic arts, among other crimes. But why was witchcraft so prevalent in the mountains in North Carolina, in the Appalachians. Well, the area was settled by a lot of Europeans. Scottish, the Irish, the English, they all settled here. You see, in the early 18th century, witchcraft trials in Massachusetts were ending. North Carolina courts stopped convicting those accused of such activity. Some cases apparently were either dropped or just weren't prosecuted. Now let's go back a little further before the end of it all, which actually has not ended in a way. Long ago, we're talking hundreds of years, before anything new, before you had cars, before the trains went through these mountain areas, North Carolina didn't have many doctors in the towns, and they relied on a very special person. This person was called a granny witch. She was the healer, one of the most powerful ones in the community, kind of like the Appalachian shaman, if you will. Uh, she would treat people with herbs, and homemade remedies. People would come from all over to get healed by these women with special gifts. But in spite of all the stereotypes and 
name-calling the other countries and even other parts of the United States. Granny witches did not care if they were called a witch. Neither did those in the community who called upon them at any given time. And no, they didn't live in the woods in little huts with pointed hats. Generally. However, they were loners. They never did fit in to the normal community at all. And their gifts were often passed down through generations. Technically, calling them a heritage witch would be more exact than a granny witch, but the eldest being the most wise and the powerful in solving health and problems in the entire community, they were revered. The concept of modern medicine hadn't reached these areas yet in the United States, or the colonies, should I say, at that time. So these women were extremely, extremely important. Their knowledge that had been passed down from generation to these people was invaluable. From gunshot to gangrene to the removal of a wart, it didn't matter. People needed their granny witches, their heritage witches, especially in the Appalachians. Now, as some did use herbs and remedies of that nature, other ones would fall under faith healers. It was not uncommon for them to make the way to your farm or you make the way to their home. And a brief moment they would lay their hands upon you, say a blessing in a few words, in hopes that you would be healed or the heaviness in your life would be lifted. People paid dearly for this in a time where nobody had much to give. A lot of times these granny witches or heritage witches, if you will, relied on barter, food, work around their homes in trade for their abilities. Now you may be surprised to hear that granny witches are still a thing in the Appalachian Mountains including the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. With the addition of modern conveniences in the world, they relied upon much less for everyday healing issues than they used to be. But they still have a keen ability to magically solve one's problems. That is what they practice, and that's what a lot of people still believe. A belief in the old ways the simpler ways. Now, some of these witches fell into a specific category, which is still used today by many people. It is a type of witchcraft, practicing witchcraft. People don't seem to give it much mind anymore of what it is, but they say science hasn't proven it, but yet it still survives today. It's called divining. These witches were called water witches. They would use specific tools, most often known as divining rods, sometimes 
out of metal, or a specific type of woods depending on what you were looking for. Myself, my father, my grandfather, and so on. We all practice this form of magic. I guess you could still call it that. Some people stake their livelihoods on it. My grandfather had a well drilling operation. Drilled many wells for many people, including oil wells. Hit it every time using divining rods. Not the same type. You need different rods for different things, as I said. But this is still highly practiced, especially in the Appalachian Mountains. If you ever get a chance to witness someone using the rods or get the chance to use them yourself, I highly recommend it. And then dig a little bit. Take your modern equipment out. Pinpoint the location. You'll find what you're looking for. Nine out of ten times. These practices, these practitioners of these arts in the day helped also deter the Native American population from ransacking their villages, their homesteads. Like the Senecas, they believed when misfortune occurred and could not be remedied, witches must be present. These witches, male or female, were people who could call out the great powers to do harm. They thought them to be different than their shamans and their religious practitioners. The light-skinned devils in the woods magically blocking them from pursuing their interests. It was best to stay away if they knew a witch traveled a path through the woods they would do a ceremony to exercise that path or avoid it altogether. The Senecas were part of the Iroquois who would kill witches if found in their midst. One such trial occurred amongst the Hurons a woman accused of witchcraft, I believe it was in 1600s, 1630s, was tortured with fire before having her head split in two by a hatchet. But not all Indians treated witchcraft the same way, and those that the Roanoke colony encountered in the 1580s didn't believe in executing witches which were part of a tribe. Only those that were outsiders much like the granny witches. It didn't matter to them if you were male or female. If you were doing things they associated with witchcraft, like spreading vile disease that attacked their tribes, you were sentenced to be killed. Early settlers believed the Indians could raise great storms and apparitions. We still believe that today. In an unusual environment, it would be easy to attribute the knowledge and occurrences to the unknown to any of these people that were practicing. In 1805, the Reverend Brantley York wrote that the belief in witchcraft has been widespread in the Piedmont, North Carolina region. 
Now Brantley York was a very well-known and respected, educated man. His acknowledgement of witchcraft helped feed the flames of hatred to a lot of the people who lived in these mountains, which caused a great stir in their communities as well. Reverend Brantley also said that shape-shifting into animals and entering the rooms through keyholes, casting spells are believed of North Carolina witches. Both men and women didn't matter. They had this ability to invade your privacy and invade your dreams. To take the shape of the family pet or a stag in the woods. Or a rabbit-faced animal with the body of a fox and the legs of a hound. It was described in the story of the Bell Witch in Tennessee. And tales of shape-shifting witches ran rampant through the mountains of North Carolina, up into Pennsylvania. For the Appalachians run a very long distance, actually going under the water and popping up again. And Scotland is the same mountain chain, just by a different name when you get there. But in North Carolina, there was a group called the Boo Hags. Uh, they were North Carolina witches from the coast that slip off their skin at night and go into the world and cause a lot of trouble. They say, you get into your house through any opening, keyholes, cracks in your windows, cracks in your floor. Now you could stop this from happening but you would have to find their skin and cover it in salt and pepper for curing. It would become too tight and they couldn't get back in their skin and they would be seen as they are to all and be able to be hunted easier. But if she was in her skin, she would just look normal. So to protect yourself, you would need to go and find a conjure man who was skilled in hoodoo. Now, hoodoo is a specific type of magic. But there again, to catch a witch, you need a witch. Now, there are specific ways of keeping out North Carolina witches out of your home. A broom across the door. Sulfur. Bible under your pillow. Or salt. Maybe mustard seeds outside the door. So a witch must stop to collect them all. Because they're obsessed with it. They see them, anything in groupings like seeds or nuts or any of that, they must stop and collect them, which gives you time to get away. Now let's be clear, there are not many, if any, convictions in North Carolina regarding witchcraft. But a lot of it was going on, especially around the Civil War. Regiments of soldiers would find these granny witches. Now there is an account just after the Civil War, in which people believed that along the Low Country, in Edgecombe County, Henrietta Creek area, it was an area that was infested by witches. A 
accounts of reputed Granny Wise or Granny Witches who lived in the French Broad River area and lifted curses and got eerily accurate results when practicing their medicines and predictions. There's a story of a witch man from Lincoln County who shapeshifted into a turkey, of all things. In Guilford County, a man insisted that three witches nightly stole molasses from his cellar. Apparently, eyewitnesses told McCrone in the area they could fly. Maybe it was due to the ingredients in which she was stealing. Now, times were tough back then. Witches were blamed for so many things that just weren't true. You can't believe every story. A lot of times it was easier to blame the crazy old woman who lived in the woods for all of your problems, sicknesses, as well as the healings. As much as they needed the granny witches and heritage witches, they hated them as well. They needed to have a scapegoat on hand so these poor women and men got persecuted for years and years and are still today in certain regions in the mountains either sought after or hunted. Now we do know that the old ways are being practiced but there is a more modern path into witchcraft that has been more grounded in North Carolina. The contemporary Tar Heel witches tend to be more towards practical ritual ceremonies, social activism, environmental conservation, and human and animal rights. Personally, I think those are all amazing qualities and things to stand up for. Depending on how they do it, for me at least, determines whether they're practicing witches. With the reclaimed nature-based spiritual paths, the Church and School of Wicca was founded by Gavin Frost and Yvonne Frost in 1968. They're headquartered in New Bern, North Carolina, for over 20 years. The Church is now based in West Virginia. It was the first federally recognized church of the religion known as Wicca, or witchcraft, in the United States. Now that means New Bern remains one of the largest centers of the national Wiccan community. Now a proud North Carolinian, David Salisbury, Salisbury, same family as the town, Salisbury, North Carolina, who now resides in D.C. as a Wiccan clergy within the firefly tradition, and in a high priest coven of the spiritual moon. David is the author of Teen Spirit Wicca and a contributor in the anthology Witch Every Day, 365 Tips and Tricks for Magical Living. He is very well known in the practicing community in North Carolina. Now, jumping back to a statement I said a little while ago about not really many if any, witchcraft trials actually happened here in North Carolina. There is one that is pretty, pretty memorable. Let's tell you a little highlight about it. It was July 25th, 
1703. When Thomas Balfrier filed legal complaints with the courts of Albemarle County accusing Susan Evans for the death of his wife Deborah by the means of witchcraft. They filed a petition stated that Susan Evans, not having the fear of God before her eyes, but being led by the instigation of the devil, did devilishly and maliciously bewitch, with assistance of the devil, afflicted the body of Deborah with mortal pains that caused her death. Thomas testified August 31, 1703, that on the morning of the 24th, his servant, Mr. Walker, fell sick with stomach pains and was not able to work that day. Now Thomas called on his servant's wife, Mrs. Walker, to come and nurse her husband. Miss Walker came the next morning from the Evans house. Thomas stated that shortly after Mrs. Walker arrived, his wife, Deborah, became ill with extreme pain in her feet. Deborah told Thomas that the pain in her feet and legs felt like a thousand nails piercing her skin. It must be the work of a witch. Deborah tried to relieve the pain by soaking her feet in hot water for 24 hours. By the next day, the pain had ceased in her feet, but she was still tormented with terrible stomach pains. Neighbors and the family that came to help tended to Deborah's needs also became ill with stomach pains. In her cries of agony, Deborah cried out that Susan was an evil woman and the great pain she was suffering was from Susan's bewitching. She begged Thomas to have Susan investigated and examined to prevent her from doing more mischief to others. Deborah continued to blame Susan for her terrible affliction until she died one month later. Now, John and Susan confronted Thomas, asking him to stop his deceitful, angry claims. They wouldn't stand for the lies. Thomas maintained his obligation to his wife's dying request and filed official charges. John is rumored to have responded to Thomas with fists, punching him and lashing out. After hearing the evidence against Susan Evans, the grand jury returned their verdict on October 27, 1703. Susan was discharged and cleared of all charges of witchcraft. Now, at one time, Susan and Deborah were great friends. What happened? Did Deborah catch Susan catching the eye of her husband, maybe? Was there some sort of bitter fight? The cause of one to curse the other in spite. And then, random sickness took hold. Just bad timing, I guess. But that's why you have to be careful around the ideas of witchcraft and just throwing around the word witch. North Carolina has many, many stories, but here I am talking about the witches of North Carolina. And if I do that, I need to bring up the legend of Phoebe Ward, the hag witch of Northampton County, North Carolina, which
which became widely known with her story and was brought to the big stage in Elizabeth A. Lay's folk superstition drama, When Witches Ride. The Sonata Folk Play was one of the first productions presented by the Carolina Playmakers in 1922. Elizabeth wrote the play from years of living as a teacher in the Northampton County, then tossed in a dash of legend and folklore. But there was a woman, a woman with a reputation of questionable ethics. Phoebe traveled place to place wherever she could take shelter. She was a granny witch of North Carolina. This woman was so feared that people did anything to keep her away. She couldn't stand the smell of burning pepper. She'd have to leave the premises. It drove her absolutely mad. They also resorted to such rituals as nailing horseshoes over stable doors and hanging mesh screens over their bedrooms to trap her and her magic from entering their dreams. Then it would be taken down again at daybreak. But it's also said that Phoebe was too smart for their trickery and deception. One witness accounts by a local man known as Uncle Benny stated that he was in a group of friends and were partaking in a campfire night, consuming brandy and whiskey from a barrel. Sounds like a great campfire. Bored and inebriated, they decided to look for something to entertain them throughout the night. So Benny and his friends decided to visit the Hagwitch Phoebe house. When they arrived, they found her, believed to be dead, lying in a makeshift bed. Presuming they were looking at a corpse, the men surrounded her body and proceeded to hold a funeral awake. As the night progressed, liquor jugs full of spirits flowing in celebration of the dead witch hag. Their party was interrupted by the horrifying sound of a wretched, broken murmur from the corner of the room where Phoebe's alleged body laid. A devilish voice cried out, Give me a little. It's mighty cold out there. The men started to flee the premises, running for their lives. All the men made a quick getaway, except for Uncle Benny, who was way too drunk and wasn't able to move. After the men left and the sound of crickets filled the air, the devilish voice cried out again, wanting a sip of brandy. Uncle Benny shouted in his drunken state, Hush, you damn witch. I'm going to bury you in the morning. Too afraid to return for their friend that same night. The escaped men decided to return to Phoebe's house the next day to find Uncle Benny. When the hungover men arrived the next morning, they were surprised to find Uncle Benny and the hag witch Phoebe still alive and well. They were found cozied up together in front of a fire, sipping jars of brandy the men had left behind. After this incident, it was told that Phoebe lived for many more years, continuing to make her living, begging, and traveling from place to place in the country, doing acts of healing, until one day she disappeared, never to be seen again. The final days of Phoebe Ward were unknown and continue 
to remain a mystery still to this day. I love these stories of folklore. There's always a little truth hidden in each of them, isn't there? Because mountain folklore, much like the stories we tell everywhere else, start off one way and end up like a game of telephone. You remember that game. The story starts this way and as it goes down the line it gets changed a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit there, till finally you have a complete folktale. Now, some of those folktales, I would argue, are completely rooted in fact, not fiction. But there will always be that chance. North Carolina. The Old World Witches Playground. Not Salem. It's amazing to have that type of history that you don't really give much thought about. But mountain ways are their own ways. Today, you'll still go to those mountain communities and superstition rules. You don't do this on that day. You don't hunt the albino stag. It brings you bad luck. So in that, I must recommend the next time you're traveling, try to take a detour through the mountains of North Carolina. Stop at every little town learn a little bit of history and learn a little more about North Carolina and the witches of the mountains. Thank you so much for joining me on the Paranormal Conclave. I do look forward to speaking with you again. I hope this helped enlighten and entertain you. And I wish you all the best in your life and your home. And if you wish to say these words when you walk in your door, I hope it brings you a little luck. Smoke and air, fire and earth, cleanse and bless this home and hearth. Drive away all harm and fear. Only good may enter here. Thank you. And as always, goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Paranormal Conclave. Join us next time for another haunting discussion of the things outside our normal realm of reality and thinking. Paranormal. Con.